listening to 99 Years, a black exploration of the deliberate creation of the whitest state in the nation. My name is Samuel James, the very first newspaper printed in what would eventually become these United States of America was published in Boston in 1690. It was called Public Occurrences Both Foreign and Domestic, and it had an implied promise. If someone somewhere was making a decision that affected your life, this paper was going to tell you all about it. Public Occurrences Both Foreign and Domestic fulfilled that promise. It fulfilled that promise so thoroughly that after reporting on government misdeeds, the government shut down the paper after its first and only edition. It would be 14 years before another newspaper would be published in the colonies, but that promise survived. It survived through convenience. Newspapers would soon be found in local shops, sold by children on street corners, dropped on doorsteps before it was even time to wake up. And as the centuries passed and the country grew, its journalism grew with it at the same time informed by and a reflection of its culture. Naturally, they shared the same limitations. For example, through much of the life of American journalism, only a certain class of person had the time to consume it. Only a certain class of person was afforded the education necessary to read it. And so that class was established as the main audience and voice of journalism all the while absorbing and promoting all that class's understanding of identity, truth, and authority. For the first 175 years of American journalism's development, information was not the only instrument commodified for a certain class of white convenience. Black people's existence in this country during that time could very well be described in the exact same way. We were not allowed agency in the developing American culture, nor allowed to witness it. In much of this country, it was illegal for us to learn to read under penalty of death. White people teaching black folks to read could face the same penalty. And so whatever public concepts of fairness or justice or truth that became part of the American identity for that initial 175 years, it did so in acceptance, if not enforcement, of black existence as commodity. After abolition, it wasn't as though newspapers started hiring black journalists in mass or decided to take on the new nationwide wave of black issues. In fact, many white-owned newspapers continued promoting white supremacy, often inciting violence and lynchings of newly freed black people. When the radio era began in 1920, you might think that level of convenient public information could be some great equalizer while for most white people, it meant an unimaginable level of convenient information, it was not the same for us. The vast majority of American black people at that time did not live on an electrical grid, and those who did lived in cities often reluctant to turn the power on in black neighborhoods. And then there's the matter of being able to afford a radio, finding a white man to sell you one, on and on. Similar obstacles existed for black folks in the era of television, but for white people, that era meant exponentially more convenient information. As the level of access grew, so did the level of trust. The TV anchor, the radio host, and the printed word were all still assumed to deliver the promise implied by public occurrences, both foreign and domestic, back in 1690. 
That promise, of course, hasn't always been kept. Countless corporations and politicians have successfully hidden destructive agendas under the cover of that convenient trust. Generally, all of this is a little different for black people. The language of convenient trust was never meant for us, so we don't really listen to it. We hear it, we understand it. But the TV anchor didn't look like us. The radio host didn't sound like us. And our traditions of passing information are through the spoken word, music, art. We taught ourselves to read, created our own newspapers, radio stations, and TV channels, reflecting our own experiences. And even now, in an era when it seems like all people have all access to all information at all times, racism still exists, dog whistles still work, and our own black experience is still the thing we usually trust the most. For a very long time, the paper of record in Portland, Maine, has been the Press Herald. If you were to flip through that paper throughout 1923, the year the city installed a white supremacist form of government, you would see black folks mentioned quite a bit. Primarily, these stories fall into one of four categories. The first is fear. This is the second largest category. The 1923 Press Herald features story after story reported from other states of robberies, rapes, and murders supposedly committed by black folks. The second category is bad faith curiosity. There are multiple Press Herald articles from that year that express great wonder as to the causes of Negro migration from the South. The third category I call, huh, in an August edition, there is a story about an end-of-season costume party at which prizes were awarded. Mrs. L.M. Allen won Best Women's Comic Prize for her costume as Negro Mammy. The first prize for men was awarded to Dr. C.F. Shea for his Chinese Mandarin costume. The fourth and largest category is what I call, well, damn, you really went out of your way. For example, there is a story about a sheriff's raid on a bootlegger in which deputies found a stash of alcohol buried under a cord of wood. Even though everyone in the story is white, the headline is, quote, found nigger in woodpile, end quote, a reference to one of those grand old colloquialisms that was well out of date by 1923. There is another headline, quote, Free Moving Picture Theater is Opened at Soldier's Home, end quote. This refers to the Soldier's National Home, a veterans facility that in 1923 was still caring for veterans of the Civil War, or as the article called it, the, quote, nigger war, end quote. Some things in the 1923 Press Herald straddled the line between categories, like an ad for the Literary Digest that wonders, quote, why lynching has slumped, End quote. It answers this question, quote, A live nigger is more efficient as a cotton picker than one who has been burned at the stake or riddled with bullets. End quote. A plain and simple analysis not even bothering to dog whistle efficiency. The 1923 Portland Press Herald does not cover any of the costume parties that happened in the black neighborhoods up on Monjoy Hill or across town on St. John Street. It doesn't cover that year's opening of the Mr. Ray Club, a Portland club for black women. 
The closest the paper comes to even implying the black community in Portland is listing the AME Zion Church in the paper's weekly Where to Worship Index. If the Press Herald is your sole record of the city's history, it would be a likely assumption that there were no black people anywhere in Portland, except maybe the jail. Another likely but false assumption one might make under those circumstances is that white people were so much more racist back then. But that's not true either. What can be safely understood is that the ownership class of the city, those who owned the businesses and the property and the information, wanted to portray black people as anything from less than human to non-existent. And so it should only make sense that in 1923, when the ownership class of the city wanted to install the white supremacist city manager form of government, their paper of record ran multiple daily articles promoting the idea. They oversaturated their readership to the point of sometimes having four articles on the same page. They were always careful to feature more than one type of person's support. The KKK, former mayors, well-to-do white women, and the Klan-backed Maine State Governor Brewster were repeated supporting points of view. The Press-Herald published more than 20 articles on the success of the city manager plan in Dayton, Ohio. Most used the dog-whistle claims of anti-corruption, efficiency, and good-for-business. None spoke of the white supremacist robber baron who ran Dayton, or how he manipulated the city into the plan, or how the plan did exactly what it was designed to do. Destroy Dayton's democracy, segregate the city, and subjugate its black population. On November 8, 2022, in the very liberal city of Portland, Maine, more than 30,000 voters went to the polls to make a decision. Voting yes on city ballot question two would mean a return to a mayoral form of government and actual democracy in the city. Voting no on two would mean retaining the white supremacist form of government that has segregated and subjugated black Portlanders for the previous 99 years. There was a lot pushing for no. There was an organization called Protect Portland's Future, ironically led by retired so-called Mayor Tom Allen, the grandson of a KKK-endorsed city councilor from 99 years ago. There was the Enough is Enough campaign. Although it appropriated its title from civil rights campaigns all the way from the 1960s through the George Floyd uprisings, it in no way shared the same interests. With over a half a million dollars in donations, largely from multinational corporations and out-of-state property developers, Enough is Enough ran a racist campaign of fear and misinformation, with warnings of black people seizing private property and visions of a helpless Portland gasping for breath, strangled by an unstoppable strongman mayor. And of course, there was the Press Herald. In addition to its racist attacks on black charter commissioners covered in our previous episode, the paper came out against Question 2, each page of its website displaying multiple Enough is Enough campaign ads. The Yes on Two side, on the other hand, was promoted only by a handful of charter commissioners. I would love to tell you that the city came together to correct the errors of its past that it understood the ways in which its government has barred black participation and halted the growth of a community for nearly a century, and so it collectively rose up and in one voice declared yes on two. But that is not what happened. 
And it wasn't close. 65% of Portland voters voted no on question two. Certainly, some of those voters were racists. In the same election, a local Nazi ran for a seat on the city council, and while he did lose, he got more than 2,000 votes. But for most Portlanders, living in a segregated city where the winners have written or omitted history, a racist campaign of fear and misinformation with a bottomless war chest is just so much louder than a handful of door-knocking commissioners. For most Portlanders, out of the five districts in the city, question two failed in four of them. But one district did actually vote in favor of question two. It should be no surprise for you to hear that Portland's second district, the district with the highest concentration of black people, voted in favor of a change in government. Victoria Pelletier is the only black woman on the city council and the councilor for Portland's second district. You know, I, I think we have a really healthy mix of working class individuals here, certainly black and brown individuals here, my neighborhood, specifically in Parkside. Um, and it's just a really interesting uh, income mix, too, in District 2. Of like We have, like, probably the most significant or one of the most significant income inequalities here of, like, Parkside and then, like, the West End area. Um, very, very different income levels. They're so used to, like, highest privilege, loudest voice is going to be controlling the votes. And now that I'm the counselor... Like, that's not how I'm doing things, <laughs> because I think that's an insane way to do things. And that's why we're here in this, like, huge issue of, like, systemic oppression is because these loud privileged voices have always been listened to. And I am not going to do that. I'm going to make sure that, again, like, I'm really going to the working class that makes up the majority of District 2. The charter, in a way, from the very beginning of its inception was unfairly scrutinized and judged. We're talking about a charter commission with limited funding. Again, a lot of these individuals, working class individuals, not retired, like like the people that are saying, you know, protect Portland's future and throwing thousands and thousands of dollars at it. Like, I, I think the whole setup of this can be looked at and studied in so many ways of like how we're sharing information, how people are receiving information based on how Portland is set up, its districts, and how like renters versus homeowners are set up in this districts, in the districts of Portland. I think it's also like the makeup of the Charter Commission versus the people that tried to crush the Charter Commission and like how that story is told in Portland of like, we have young people that are trying to change a city versus people that have lived here for years and years and years and are homeowners and are retired and have money to spend and are like, nope, we're crushing the working classes campaign. So I feel, I feel like there's that. There's no time to campaign. The information couldn't make its way to everybody in Portland. Like this charter question and the charter commission was created because of the demands from Black Power two years ago when we were all protesting in the street after George Floyd was murdered and everybody was in for the change of the government system at that time. Like, I don't know that you could find a person that was not into that idea of getting rid of the city manager structure two years ago. I remember they had those little flyers. It was on every single person's social media page. Everybody was talking about it. We're all in. How do we do it? And it's a perfect display of what happens when people truly don't care about an issue beyond like the, beyond the issue, like being right in their face at that time. 
Like right at that time, it was a pandemic, was the height of the pandemic. Everybody's in the streets. We're all saying Black Lives Matter. Let's do it. Let's change the government system. Let's put Black people first. Fast forward to now. And suddenly a lot of the comments I'm seeing are like, well, I don't know that this is the right way to do it. What's the right way to do it? I'm I'm literally trying to figure what is the right way? There's no right way to dismantle any system because this hasn't happened before. Like it hasn't been dismantled. So like there's no rule book of like step one, do this, step two, do that. You know, it's like the right way to protest. There's no right way to protest. There's no right way to dismantle years of, of oppression. But the closest thing to the right way was passing question two. I think that was like a final exam of Black Lives Matter. And we kind of, we failed until it's all rewritten, which would have been what question do, two would have started to do. We're still going to have all of this pushback on a lot of like policies that would liberate black and brown people. The not passing of question two is so much bigger than a lot of people realize, because that was a key to saying like, wow, we can really make change in Portland. We can have it started from a grassroots group of Black organizers, and we can take what they pushed for and demanded all the way to the creation of a charter that's arguably the most like racially and ethnically diverse it's ever been. And then that can go to the voters, the voters can pass it, and we can transform Portland to the city we said we wanted two years ago. How can we really do anti-Black policy for Portland when the whole way that we have to go about it is also steeped in anti-Blackness? This podcast is a Black exploration of the deliberate creation of the whitest state in the nation. Maine is the whitest state because powerful white supremacists react to Black agency by finding ways to normalize hate. They'll create entire systems enshrining it, as in the case of the city manager form of government. They'll hide behind and act as the law, like when Maine Governor Plaisted committed an ethnic cleansing against the descendants of Benjamin Darling on Malaga Island. They will also disregard the law, the first episode of this podcast begins with an explanation of a New York Times headline, Maine Black Wins Place Names Battle. In 1977, after years of fighting, Gerald Talbot, the first black man elected to the Maine State Legislature, managed to pass a bill to change the names of places throughout the state called Nigger Island, Nigger Lake, Nigger Hill, etc. It passed 108 to 26. 26 is a pretty big number. Big enough to not really lose. Because while the names of some of those places changed, some of them didn't. In 2021, Rachel Talbot Ross, the first black woman elected to the Maine State Legislature, as of this recording, the soon-to-be Speaker of the Maine House, the first black person ever to hold that title, ninth-generation Mainer, and Gerald Talbot's daughter, succeeded in passing a bill that would enforce name changes, almost 45 years later. Maine is the whitest state, but it's never been without black people, and it's not without black leaders. Regina Phillips, local community builder, and Rachel Talbot Ross's sister, was just elected to the Portland City Council, where she will serve beside Victoria Pelletier. Rachel herself has been the force behind Maine's new African-American curriculum law, the Black Heritage Mapping Project, the Juneteenth Paid State Holiday, voter registration efforts for the incarcerated, and a very long list of criminal legal reform measures undoing some of that normalized hate on the state level. But the burden on these black women's shoulders 
is not getting any lighter. And that hate is not going away. It could be getting much worse. In late October of 2022, shortly before Portland's Question 2 failed, Vice News reported, quote, a neo-Nazi and ex-Marine coordinating an online movement to turn Maine into an all-white ethnostate is building a property there, while also working with a violent extremist group in the region, end quote. By the way, this Nazi organized a nationwide counter-protest on the anniversary of George Floyd's murder. He's under investigation by the FBI, but he's an entirely different Nazi than the one who ran for Portland City Council. The article goes on to explain that the Press-Herald has downplayed the potential of these Nazis moving to the state, quote, despite the fact that it was already an attractive place for neo-Nazis as one of the whitest places in America, and members of this neo-Nazis online ecosystem already claim to be there. But the fact an infamous neo-Nazi activist and organizer has physically moved to Maine, where he is said to be pursuing an all-white and racist community, is evidence of a strategy among the far right to build exclusive spaces where they can promote their extremist ideologies, and it can sometimes mean amassing weapons and ammunition for a future race war. End quote. Ninety-nine years before this recording, about a month before the election in that terrible year of 1923, in the Portland Press-Herald, amidst all the racism and lies that would soon convince the city to install white supremacy as its means of governance, buried deep on page 8, on a Wednesday, there is this one single, solitary black voice. He's the black pastor of a black church in Portland, and it's as if he knows what's coming, as if he can tell that the rules are about to change to benefit everyone's community but his own. Again. And so he writes in with a reminder, clear and personal, of black humanity. It is titled Grandfather's Story by Edward W. Gant, pastor of the AME Zion Church in Portland, Maine. Quote, A few years ago, a writer in the Literary Digest was seeking to find the reason for the sadness of expression in Negro music and poetry. At the time, I attempted to give the reason, if there is expression of sadness in our music and poetry, in song, but never sent it to press. So I'm sending it to you. How well I remember cold nights in the winter, when happily perched on my grandfather's knee. The stories he told me cannot be forgotten. Those heart-aching stories he oft told to me. He told me how cruel were some of his masters, who beat him and drove him from morning till night, who bought him and sold him through slave-trading markets, whose auctioneers bawled out their wares in delight, of mothers whose children were torn from their bosom, whose cries did not soften the slave-dealer's heart. The children were auctioned in spite of their mothers. The auctioneers heartlessly tore them apart. Of overseers brutal, who never showed mercy in beating and driving the poor helpless slave. 
The hardships and floggings and inhuman treatment was often the cause of an untimely grave. The thoughts of the story my grandfather told me still clings to my memory and will not depart. That's why there is sadness and not always gladness expressed in the poetry that comes from my heart. End quote. This is the final episode of season one of 99 Years, but please keep an eye on this feed as interviews and minisodes and other related content will be coming down the line. 99 Years was recorded at the podcast studio at Sopo Coworks. Eternal thanks to you, the listeners, and everyone who helped make 99 Years happen in ways large and larger, including, but not limited to, Rosa Noreen, Julian Rowand, Sameh Abdurraqib, Shea Stewart Boulay, Chris Busby, Chenjirai Kumanyika, Gerald Talbot, Bob Green, Rachel Talbot Ross, Lelia D'Andrade, Meg Bowles, Janelle Pfeiffer, Nora Sachs, Nat May, Nyalat Bilyeu, Rob Rosenthal, Michaela Bly, Tom McMillan, Regina Phillips, Craig Hickman, Ali Ali, Victoria Pelletier, Nicole Hannah Jones, Mo Nunez, Gareth Reynolds, Dave Anthony, Peter Aguero, Michael Cabetta, Nazreen Sheikh Youssef, Marcus Houston, Jill Dusan, Mimi and Marco, Krista Rollins, Nick Schroeder, Kathy Kidman, Adam Burke, Marcia Minter, Daniel Minter, Aminata Conte, Jordia Benjamin, Ashley Page, Veronica Perez, everybody at Indigo Arts Alliance, Maine Initiatives, Maine Humanities Council, the FUBU Fund, and of course, the incomparable Flo Edwards. 99 Years was co-produced by Flo Edwards and made with generous support from Maine Initiatives, the FUBU Fund, Maine Humanities Council, and with fiscal sponsorship through Indigo Arts Alliance.